0: turn together to the book of Philippians, the second chapter, beginning at verse 9. Our text this morning is Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Let's begin, though, for a bit of context at chapter 2, verse 5. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Holy Word of God. It is inerrant, it is authoritative, it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father thus far the reading of god's word let us pray for his blessing upon his word in our lives lord god we ask that you would use your word that you would use your word to point us to the lord jesus christ We ask especially this morning, O Lord, that you would show us his glory and his magnificence. That we would understand indeed that he is very God and he is worthy of all our praise. We also ask, Lord, that you would encourage us from your word. That we would walk the path that you have set before us. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you ever get weary of the Christian life? Do you ever get weary of doing things the way they're supposed to be done? Of acting the way you're supposed to act in church? Of being the kind of family that you are supposed to be? You know, it is a great difficulty and challenge to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because there are many models put up in front of us. And as we look about, we wonder if our family should look more like that family, if our marriage should look more like that marriage. And we wonder how we can get others to see that we are following the path of Jesus. And at times, perhaps, we even look a bit like the world, which is constantly putting itself forward to be noticed, advertising itself posing for cameras, writing about itself. But this is not the true path of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian life can only be lived when it is a life of humility. And the great glory of following the Lord Jesus Christ is that it is through the path of humility that we find true meaning, true exaltation, true worth. In the eyes of others. It is the path that our Lord Jesus himself walked. And Paul is going to show us here this morning. The result of walking the path of humility. You may recall we looked last week at the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how he humbled himself. Became a servant. Was obedient to the Lord God. Even to the point of death. The most wretched death imaginable. Death on a cross that he had this mind of putting others first, of not putting himself forward, of not looking to his own interests, but rather to looking to the interests of others. And now Paul is going to show us what the reward of our Lord Jesus Christ was, how God exalted him for his obedience and his humility. And so what I would like us to see here this morning are three things from our text. That is, first, We will ask the first question, what was Christ's exaltation? What does it mean to say that Jesus Christ, the God-man, was exalted? And then second, we will ask the question, how was Christ exalted? How did this come about? What does it look like? And then finally, and perhaps most importantly for us today, we will ask the question, why was Christ exalted? So, what was Christ's exaltation? How was Christ exalted? And then why was Christ exalted? Let's turn together then to chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What does it mean when Paul says that Jesus Christ was highly exalted? This is, again, one of these words that Paul tends to be making up in this chapter and the previous chapter. Not that it's a false word, but he takes a perfectly good word that is to be exalted or to be lifted up, and he puts a preposition on top of it. You know, the way when you go out to a really good meal, it's not just a good meal, it's a super-duper good meal. You start to add adjectives in front of it. Paul wants to make us understand that Jesus Christ has is exalted exalted beyond any exaltation before. now kids exalted's a pretty big word isn't it? What does it mean? it means simply lift it up lift it up so that you can see lift it up so that you can give honor. it's kind of like after, the winning home run is hit or the winning touchdown is scored. The team will oftentimes pick up that person, put them up on put him up on their shoulders and carry him around, lift it up so he can be seen above all the crowd as the one who is responsible for the victory. You see, that's what God has done to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has lifted him up above everyone else that we might look up and easily see and rejoice in Jesus the one who was humbled and low has been lifted up that we might see him and what does this consist in well the first thing the first phase of Christ's exaltation was his resurrection his resurrection from death god exalted him in lifting him up from death in showing first that death could not pers- could not possibly hold jesus You see, it's a truism, isn't it? It's one of the favorite logical examples. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Socrates is mortal. But you see, that doesn't apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. Death cannot hold him like it holds Socrates, or Joe, or Bob, or you, or me. You see, He is very God. He is life himself. As he says in the Gospel of John, I am the life. And so death cannot hold him. It is impossible. Peter puts it this way in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24 that God had raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There is no if or maybe about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a part of his very nature he could do nothing but rise from the dead. Because death cannot hold him. And we know that Christ, Paul says in the letter to the Romans, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. You see, as Christians, we need not fear the future. Christ has died, but Christ is risen. He will never die again. He will never fail. He will never be weak. He will never be under the power of death. He is exalted high by God Himself. The resurrection also shows that God's justice is satisfied. It's not just that Jesus is the power of life Himself. His death was a penal one. It was a punishment. And the punishment has been fulfilled. Justice has been satisfied by the fact that he is no longer under the power of death. You know that well-known, highly comforting verse of Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us? Does the devil whisper in your ear words of condemnation. That you're not a good enough husband. You're not a good enough father. You're not a good enough mother. You don't, you don't read your Bible enough. You're not in church enough. You don't teach enough. When he does, you say, who are you to condemn? Satan. Jesus is risen. God's justice is satisfied by merely being in Jesus I have freedom, liberty. Not guilty in Christ. This is the exaltation of Jesus. It flows beyond him to us. Because you see, not only is the justice of Jesus, or the justice of God satisfied, but in that satisfaction Jesus is made lord over his people. He is lord over both the living and the dead. Paul says in Romans 14 Because of his resurrection. He has for himself a people. And lest you think of that in some sort of vague terms, I want you to look around. Those are his people. His people who are freed by his resurrection, who are lifted up and under his lordship, both living and dead. And that grants us a great assurance. Because you see... Jesus went first through resurrection. And that is the greatest hope we can have. As Christians, we need not fear death because he has gone first. Fathers, you know what this is like with your children, don't you? When you want your child to do something, perhaps walk across a bridge or go out into the water, and they are with fear and trepidation clinging back. What do you do? Do you scream at them to go and go do it? No, what you do is you go into the water first. And you say, see, it's fine. It's not too cold. You walk across the bridge. Look, see, it's not going to fall. It'll hold. Come with me. And children will immediately follow. Because they know it's safe. Because they know you have gone first. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ does with the most fearful thing we have to face, death itself. As we think about our own death, as we think about the death of loved ones that we desire and long to see again, we have great hope because we know there is another side. We don't just think there is. We don't just wish there is. We know it because Jesus has come from the other side. He is gone Before us, the exaltation of Christ is also found in his reign, not just in his resurrection, but in his reign right now, because his reign shows that the victory is won. He is risen from the dead and he reigns even now, showing that he has won victory over death and the devil. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. Luke puts it this way for us. It's very interesting, the little things in the Bible that you notice. As we think about the reign of Christ and we think about the reality of it, I want you to notice how Luke describes the ascension, the beginning of the reign of Jesus. Beginning here at verse 9. I want you to, in your mind... Perhaps even, kids, you can use your fingers. I want you to count how many times Luke uses words for looking and seeing. And when he had said these things, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, it's not a coincidence that Paul uses five looking verbs plus a behold here. Excuse me, Luke. It's because he wants us to know the certainty of the ascension and reign of Jesus Christ. This is not just some story. We are to be reminded over and over and over again that there were eyewitnesses to this. It is the very truth. Jesus indeed reigns. What is the context of Jesus' reign now? What does it mean to say that Jesus reigns even now? Well, to get the context of this in Acts We must go back to the end of the Gospels, because Acts follows the Gospels. And here we won't go to Luke's Gospel, we go to Matthew's Gospel. And we look at it at the very end, the very last thing that our Lord did and said before the narrative of His ascension, was He committed the Great Commission to His disciples. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, the context of the victory being won is in the gospel going forward. Jesus is exalted in his reign right now. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And as he sits there, he rules over his people. Have you ever wondered why some people are gifted in teaching and preaching? Or in hospitality. Or in prayer. Or in service. you think it's just something that comes naturally? Perhaps it's something that God randomly distributes. No. The reason that you have the gifts that you have, beloved, is the risen Jesus Christ ascended on high, Paul says in Ephesians 4, and he went up to get gifts, to give them to men. The exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ blesses you every day that you experience the blessing of others' gifts in your lives. The blessing of knowing that Jesus has prepared a place for you. That there are mansions in glory prepared by the exalted Christ. And by the fact that every day, as John tells us in his first letter, Jesus intercedes for us, pleading our case at the right hand of God. Jesus is exalted in his resurrection, he's exalted in his reign, and he is also exalted in the fact that he is returning. He will return. He will return to judge the world, the living and the dead, the just and the wicked. And he will return to manifest his power. And glory. Jesus is exalted. This is one of the reasons, as we spoke a few Sunday evenings ago, about crucifixes. And why they're wrong. Because they show a defeated, dying, dead Christ on a cross. When our Lord is not defeated. He is not dying. He is risen. He is exalted in all power. It's the same reason why the world loves to harp on about the baby in the manger without seeing the glorious returning king. You see, Jesus is exalted in his return in glory. This is the way in which Jesus has been exalted by the Lord God himself, God the Father. So how does Jesus get here? How is he exalted in his resurrection, his reign and his return? How does he arrive at this point Well, Paul tells us the first thing is that the source of this exaltation was God. Notice he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He doesn't say that Jesus exalted himself or that the church exalted him through his worship. He says God has exalted him. Now, why is this? What is going on here? Jesus is very God. So how does God exalt God the Son? How does God the Father exalt God the Son, lift Him up? I think in this way. God the Father here is expressing a value judgment about our Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator of the covenant, as the king over His people, as the priest for their sins, and as their prophet, to tell to them the very Word of God. God looks at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and His ministry, and He expresses a value judgment in saying that this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There is no one more worthy of honor and glory than Him. He is highly exalted, super-duper exalted. There is no better place That Jesus could be placed upon. Now, if we think about it, even we act this way in our daily lives. If you want to know what someone values, look and see how they treat various things. You can tell probably within an hour if a man values his wife by the way he treats her. Is he dismissive? Is he angry? Does he ignore her? You can tell immediately how a wife values her husband. Is she speaking to him only to have her will done? Is her voice sort of like nails on a chalkboard? Or in each of these cases, is it an opportunity to see loving, sacrificial service even in the midst of anger and disagreements. But knowing that the value of the person is greater than the thing being argued about. That at the end of the day, if I had to choose between the car, the house, the job, and my wife, it's a no-brainer. You see, we think about the things that we value by making them important, by lifting them up, We even do this with physical things. My boys have played baseball in various baseball leagues in Mississippi and in Texas. And at the end of the year, oftentimes, nearly every time, they get a trophy. And one year, they actually won a championship, and they got a larger trophy with their names on it. Now, they didn't want to stick that in the bottom of their closet. No. We built a special shelf. Well, I didn't. You know I didn't built a special shelf around the top of their wall that they could put it on so that when friends come over, they can see it. They can look up and see it. You do this in your home as well. Perhaps you put your wedding album on the top of the L of the uh, fireplace. Mantle, thank you. These are the things that we honor. And so, God the Father does this with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a hasty action. You see, sometimes there are some people, usually sometimes they're male, in which they find a favorite thing in about 15 seconds. And it's their favorite thing until they find the next favorite thing. Right? But you see, God the Father didn't act hastily. Have you ever wondered why there were 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension? Part of it is that our Lord Jesus Christ ministered to his disciples. But part of it also is to show that our Lord did not take a hasty action in ascending Jesus Christ to his throne. It was a decision based upon value and careful consideration. It could come out no other way. But no one could accuse God of being hasty. Now, why would God exalt Jesus Christ? Perhaps it is because Jesus is God. Because Jesus is perfect. Actually, Paul's text says no. The shocking thing about this text is that Jesus was exalted not because of who he is, although he's surely deserving of that. But Jesus was exalted because of what he did, the life that he lived. Look with me at verse 9. You're all well healed Bible exegetes. The first word here is therefore. And so what do we do? We look back and we see what the therefore is there for. Why is it there? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Why? Because he had humbled himself. Because he had made himself a servant. Because he had been obedient. Maybe now we're starting to see the place of obedience in the Christian life. That Jesus Christ lived a life of complete obedience. And it was because of that, that God raised him up exalted Him highly above everyone else. This was the kind of obedience that was even obedience to death. And you see, this is the sort of person Jesus is. You see, it's not just the things He did, but it's the very fact of His life. The fact that He is personified as being one who is obedient and humble and a servant. Now, why is that important to you and to me here now? We're not Jesus. We're not going to be highly exalted. We're not called to death on a cross. It's important to us because God is calling you to that same kind of obedience. You see, that's the path of exaltation. It's not thinking highly of yourself. It's not looking to your own needs, but the needs of others. It's being a servant. It's being humble. It's being obedient. You see, this is the path of exaltation. This is the principle that comes throughout the scriptures. It's a principle of humility. I'll give you just three instances. And this serves as the amen, amen, and amen of the Christian life. Matthew chapter 23, our Lord says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you think his disciples learned this principle? James did. Chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Peter learned it the hard way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see, this is so contrary to the world. This is a different kind of exaltation. It is one founded upon not putting yourself forward. And if we are honest with ourselves, this is a very difficult thing to do. You see, because everyone around us is putting themselves forward. They're shining up their resume. They're padding their resume. In some instances, they're making up a resume. They're putting on shows. You know, it's not just products that advertise themselves now. Do you know that you can hire people to advertise for you? To place good words about you in society, in clubs, and out and about. To show how good you are, how worthy of that promotion you should be. How worthy of that raise you should be how worthy of that position you should be. And we are tempted in the church to think that if we don't rush forward, we will be forgotten and left behind. So we'd better run to the head of the line. We'd better be first at the sandwich supper. We'd better be first to sign up for the committee. We'd better be first to do this. Otherwise, we're going to be left behind. But you see, the entire life of Jesus screams no to that. That we are exalted through this principle of humility. You see, Jesus was exalted not for His worth, but for His humble service. So what does that mean then for you and for me? It means that God will not exalt you because you're six foot one. Or because when you walk down the street, you turn heads. Or because your wallet is thicker than others. Or your voice is better than others. It means the Lord God Himself will exalt you. Because you are becoming more and more like Christ. Being humble. Being a servant. Seeking His glory. And the good of His people, not your own. This is a completely kind of... of exaltation. It is a completely different paradigm. It is what makes the church so different from the world. It is truth to the statement, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Is that biblical truth merely a joke to use when you're standing in line for you? Or is it the way in which you live your life? You see, that's how Jesus lived his life. And he was exalted. We can share in this exaltation, provided that we live a life of obedience. A life of kneeling obedience. Sharing in the very life of Christ. And this, quite frankly, is a bit scary. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verse 17. He says, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Sounds good, doesn't it? I want to be an heir with Christ. I want to be a fellow heir. I want to be like Jesus. I want to have what Jesus has. Those are good, lofty goals. Provided, Paul says. Uh oh. Provided. Provided what? Provided that we believe in Him? Provided that we sing? provided that we have perfect attendance, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You see, the Christian life is one of humility and suffering because that was Jesus' life. So, where does this lead us to? What kind of exaltation is this? How was Jesus exalted by God? In humility, he was given the name that is above every name. Now, just as we read that, it doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? First of all, how how is there a name above every name? And isn't Jesus already the name above every name? I mean, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. How can Jesus get a name that is better than his name? emphasis here is found in the second part he has been bestowed on him a name that is above every name verse 11 that we might confess that Jesus Christ is lord and actually in the greek it's lord Jesus Christ the emphasis here is on lord you see the name that is above every name is Lord. It is the covenant name of God that we saw over and over and over again in Kings. Yahweh is the way it's transliterated. In your Bibles, it's the big capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name above every name. The self-existent I am. That is the name that is bestowed upon Jesus Christ. And this affects our world view if we are honest about it. We see that Jesus is Lord of all right now. There is no optional taking of Jesus as Lord. There is a theology that says you can believe in Jesus as Savior and wait around a while and then pick Him up as Lord as well. Balderdash. You can't have that in the Scriptures. Jesus is Lord right now. And if you will have him as Savior, you must acknowledge that he is Lord. Now, the world doesn't know this yet. The world pretends this isn't true yet, but it doesn't change the reality of the situation. It's a bit like this, if we think about it in terms of a modern illustration. There are people around, or perhaps you and I can pretend all we want, that the current occupant of the White House is not the president. It's not going to change anything. He is the president. He does have the presidential seal. You see, just by pretending Jesus is not Lord over a portion of our life, he's not Lord over our marriage, he's not Lord over our use of the Internet, he's not Lord over our parenting, doesn't change who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord and He is also Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the King of kings, but He is also the King over His people. Now, Jesus is God. He was always Lord. So the question then comes, how does He receive this name above all names? Was there a time in which Jesus was not Lord? No. What this means is that Jesus is emerging... From incognito, sort of like disguise, to full lordship. Do you remember incidents in the Gospels in which Jesus would heal? And before they went away, he would say, Now wait, be careful, don't tell anyone. And of course, the first thing they would do was go out and tell the whole town. Right? And then he would go over and he would perform a miracle. And he would say, Now wait, don't tell anyone. And they would go over and they would go shout it from the rooftops. Right? Right? Bible scholars call that the messianic secret. It's in the sense that Jesus did not want his messiahship, the fact that he was Christ, to be broadcast from the roofs till his work was done. He was humble and lowly. But you see, now his work is completed and it is being shouted from every mountaintop. Jesus is Lord. He has got full lordship. Visible to everyone. What he, what he has possessed is now visible to all. So the final question then comes. Why all of this? Why this exaltation in his resurrection, his reign, and his return? Why does Jesus get the name above every name? The first reason, I think, is so that salvation would be seen. Turn with me, if you would, very briefly to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. In chapter 45, we have a a verbal battle of God against the gods, small g. God showing that all idols are put to shame. Look with me, if you would, at verse 16. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. God alone is God. And God alone can save. Look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now look with me if you would at verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. There is only God, and salvation is only found in God. Verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. There is only salvation found in God. Verse 23, By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Sound familiar? That's what Paul's saying. Only God is God, and only God can save. And to God shall every knee bow and every tongue confess. You see, only in Jesus Christ is salvation found. There is no exception. Every knee, not just most of the knees, not just the plurality of the knees, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. You see, what God is telling you right now today is if you have not confessed that you are a sinner, And your only hope is in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. There is no place else to turn. This is the only place where you can find salvation. In the Lord Jesus Christ. God has exalted Him up that you might look from the ends of the earth and be saved. This is what God is calling you to today. And as His servant, I say to you, if you have not professed faith in Christ... Isaiah and Paul and the living God himself demand that you do so. It is not a suggestion. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded that there is a limitation to our evangelism. You remember we said that Christ was exalted by his return? He is returning. And he's not returning to a second chance. You don't get a lifeline. He is returning to judge the world. There is a day coming and it is a day of reckoning. In Matthew 25, every one of those parables ends in a day of reckoning. You see, Jesus Christ is exalted that we might know where salvation is found. But even if we are already in possession of salvation, even if we already know by faith that we are Christ, Jesus Christ is exalted that He would be worshipped that he would find his rightful place. Do you remember the illustration we looked at last week where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in John 13? In John thirteen twelve, after he's done that, John says something that's very interesting. He says he got up, he fixed his clothes, and he went back to his place. The parallel applies here. Jesus has lived a life of humility, but He is now once again the glorious risen Savior, God Himself, and He is to be worshipped. There is never a time when He was not God. Do you see Jesus Christ as one to be worshipped? God has exalted Him to that place. As a matter of fact, that is the very purpose and the reason why He was given this name. He was given this name above every name so that with a purpose that at His name every knee should bow. Jesus is exalted that we might worship Him. And finally, Jesus is exalted that God might be glorified to the glory of God the Father, verse 11. Now this seems exceedingly odd. God is exalted Jesus up to this highest point that there's no name above His name, that He might have every knee bow before Him and every tongue confess, how can God, the one who does not share any of His glory, for my own sake I do it, says God in Isaiah 48. My glory I will not give to another. How is it? How is it that God could be glorified by the exaltation of Christ. It's because Jesus is God. His glory is God's glory. You see, it's further proof in our lives that Jesus is not some good teacher, not some humble man, not some example to follow, but Jesus is very God. The question comes to you. Do you glorify God with your life as Jesus did with his? You see, this is the calling for the church. To have that mind that was in Christ. To be a servant. To seek after the things of Christ. That God might be glorified and Jesus might be exalted. That is the purpose for which Christ Church exists for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of God the Father.